0: And we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hobcast Book Show from Hobec Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit.
1: Hello Hello
0: and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode 136 of the show. And uh, it is a great pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for joining us. My name is Adrian Hobart.
1: My name is Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres: crime, mysteries,
1: suspense,
0: and self-help. Self-help? Uh thrillers. <laughs> Sorry. Um I got confused. Maybe we should go into it. I, I think don't know. We should, yeah. Okay, well, welcome to the show, and we have a returning guest today, uh, which is a great joy, because it's Greg Moss, who joined us in episode number 94. And
1: uh, was, just... that, was that quite a year ago, or not quite a year ago? No,
0: not quite. It's not far off, but it was actually October of last year.
1: So yes. So, yes, we've had him on again, but with a slightly different emphasis.
0: And we first met him at Fatal Shore in Shoreham, and uh, he was accompanied by... Kate Moss, who joined us the week after Greg was on the show. Greg is a playwright. He is a, an enabler of writers, a novelist in his own right, and that's quite a recent phenomenon, and he's now departing into cosy crime as well. Um, one of the one of the clearest thinkers on the art of writing, and um, we got a great deal from it, and we learnt a lot about his childhood. It was almost a Michael Parkinson-style interview, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was good, because I think we, we initially thought, okay, we've had, this, we've had Greg on before, we don't want it to be similar to last time, but it no, wasn't at all. It, was,
0: it wasn't at all, no. I mean, I actually listened back to the old interview to make sure we didn't cover the same territory, but I don't think there was ever any danger. No, not at
1: all. Because
0: he's such an interesting uh, guy, and, um, you know, he name he drops a bit, which uh, was quite fun as well. <laughs> he's very, well, a very well-connected couple.
1: Yes, well, I think I, I um, led him to that. You but, did, but you did. But you just have to listen to find out how.
0: Okay, so Greg Moss, our guest, a wee bit later in the show. Now, we start with news which we've known for some weeks, but we didn't feel it was our place to, to break the story. No, because I it's, was told it, in confidence. So. It was, yeah, we were told in confidence, and it's really sad. Um, this news is that Red Dog Press, who in many ways, are very, very, very similar to us. Small indie publisher of crime well, and literary crime as yeah.
1: well. When, when we started, and I did a bit of research into other similar publishers, mm. because, you know, when we were keen and fresh, and, and they came up all the time, and so... In many ways, we emulated what they were doing. I can remember looking at their merchandise and thinking that's how we came up with the idea of doing you know the Pope mugs and mugs stuff
0: and badges and things like that. But
1: yes, just they've been an inspiration and then we got to know Sean a little bit, and we actually were going to have him on the podcast and he's helped us and a couple of things a couple of issues that we've come across um
0: we 're talking about Sean Coleman, who actually lives in the village that i my father lives in, and my kids grew up in recently, and where I used to live until not that long ago until we moved together so uh, Sean has decided to shut Red Dog press and um, he 's also an author, but uh, the main thing is that Red Dog Press is closing, and this is we 've known this for a few weeks because one of their authors approached us, and he 'd broken the news to them but Here's what uh, he said to the bookseller. Mm. Um, This industry is unkind to small indies and I just can't keep up the fight any longer. Yeah, amen to that. Explaining his decision, Coleman told the bookseller that when the pandemic hit, the press was just hitting our stride and that we were for the briefest of windows flying. However, he said things became difficult when, after putting a lot of time, effort and money into promoting those titles, I quickly began to see that our expectation of being able to compete was not being thwarted by our size or reputation, but by whether or not we could afford to market in the same ways as the larger publishers. Well, we can't, and that's true of indies. He said we couldn't afford any of that. I started the company from scratch. I had no investment, and neither did I seek it. I was going to make it without outside help. Naive, perhaps, but it seemed to be working for a while. Recently, however, he said a number of factors have conspired to change everything about the way we've worked. The effects of Brexit on our print costs, yep. And the difficulties of shipping to Europe, yep, being the biggest factors there. He also cited challenges getting reg doc books into bookshops, yep. And the associated costs, as well as social media no longer working as a direct marketing tool. Yep. Yes,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: Coleman said, The final nail in the coffin was the current cost of living crisis and people's ability to pay for luxury items like paperback books. Mm. We watched our sales fall off a cliff, he said. Uh, now, he had a tie-in for a year or so in terms of marketing with Bloodhound, Bloodhound Books.
1: Oh, yes, I did know about that, yeah.
0: And he says, on that front, we did broker a licensing and distribution deal with the good people at Bloodhound Books in an attempt to take advantage of their greater skill, expertise, and reach, specifically in the ebook market. This definitely helped keep the wolf from the door for another six months. But ultimately, the business as it is can no longer wash its face, and it's not through want of trying and adapting. Ultimately, Coleman said the decision to close comes of being tired of feeling like Sisyphus, rolling the boulder of expectation up that hill only for it to roll all the way to the bottom again every time. I deserve better, he says. My authors deserve better. The readers deserve better. Equally, though, I have my own cost-of-living crisis to work through, and the company was no longer able to pay me a wage. Well, we haven't taken a wage from ours, so we understand that. On what will happen to authors' titles, he said... We will revert all rights to our authors on closure. Some have already had those rights returned and have signed with new publishers, and I have been working with them and colleagues from other presses to find and ensure continuity for my authors. There are a couple who already self-published some of their own other work, and they will be doing this. And there are a couple of others who are still pursuing their options with other publishers. The worst part of the decision to close has always been feeling that I have failed my authors. So I will continue to champion them all in any way I can until they are rehomed.
1: He's a good guy.
0: Uh, He is. He is. Um, Well, uh, I think we'll just let that sink in. I mean, um, I feel for him. And, you know, those pressures are facing us too. We've only just come away from a debate about (laughs) <laughs> what how we take Hobek forward because all of those things ring true to us.
1: Yeah, every, every time we get a big bill, um we have the same debate, but yeah.
0: It's yes, and the bills keep coming and the sales keep dropping. Um and that's the nature of it at the moment. And I I just you know, and I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I and mean, I went out today trying to find work. Yeah you know I and can, i
1: work 7 days a week
0: you do <laughs> so we're with you Sean, and we're thinking of you and we're thinking of your authors and your readers and um we salute the achievements of red dog press over the last 5 years and the effort and the passion and the dream mm, the dreams a lot, a lot that, of passion. that it carried and
1: yeah, a lot
0: of... you know it's really tough and it's it's horrible feeling um you know, not nothing we could do to help. We weren't in a position to take your authors um, at this stage no, either.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the the one author who approached me, I I just had to say, I'm really sorry. We just, yeah, uh, we can't.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's really, really difficult to to read that. Actually, yeah, uh, it was very
1: very emotional and honest, raw yes. speech, wasn't it? So, mm.
0: yeah. And uh, well, look, wish you every Success for the future, rebuilding, because it's going to be, it's like a death, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, you mourn your company. It's I, such an extension of yourself.
1: We still need to share a coffee with Sean next time. Yeah, we're, we're in too. Disney.
0: Absolutely. We're in Disney regularly. <laughs> um, okay. Moving on to another story, um, which is throws up a, a debate about values, I think, around publishing. So here, here's the story again from the bookseller. A blurb for Jordan Peterson's Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, published by Alan Lane, has drawn criticism <laughs> for splicing negative quotes from reviewers to suggest positive endorsements for the book. Now, this is a really regular thing in cinema.
1: They don't know, but it's also regular in books as well, you yeah. know. I, I've worked for a publisher and I was taught how to do this, so...
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I know exactly how it's done. But That's
1: why it's making me laugh, because it's like, you know, this is not new. <laughs>
0: Well, you know when you see a, a, a poster on a, for a movie? Yeah. And it'll have a one-word review. Exactly. Exciting exactly. Daily Mail. Exactly.
1: Because it could have said, well, it started off exciting, but the rest was awful.
0: Exactly. And um, I'm thinking of someone we know in the publishing trade who has at the top of his book pages on Amazon uh, endorsements from the BBC, which they wouldn't offer, I
1: know who you're talking about, let's not talk about it.
0: No, no, no. But anyway, (laughs) I I just thought that that just echoed. But anyway, several journalists from major newspapers, including James Marriott, columnist at The Times, and uh, Johanna Thomas-Core, literary editor of The Sunday Times, have spoken out about the situation, while other commentators believe the wider industry practice needs to be reviewed. And the debate began when Marriott shared the jacket of the controversial Canadian psychologist-turned-influencer's latest paperback, In a tweet he has since deleted, Marriott wrote, Incredible work from Jordan Peterson's publisher. (laughs) My review of this mad book, Beyond Order, was probably the most negative thing I have ever written. (laughs) (laughs) The cover quote from Marriott reads, A philosophy of the meaning of life, the most lucid and touching prose Peterson has ever written. But Marriott's original review for The Times in 2021 said, his philosophy, which is bonkers and only described one chapter about interior design, as containing one of the most sensitive and lucid passages of prose he has written. The Times literary editor Robbie Millen wrote of the incident, publishers are like medieval alchemists. <laughs> they can take the best ba- <laughs> excuse me base metal of a stinking book review and turn it into the gold of praise.
1: It's so true, though. I mean, this was what publishers do. They always have. This is not news. Not really.
0: Mm. Be suspicious, says (laughs) Millen, of the quotes on the back of paperbacks. Know that the clever people in publishing have used all their skills to take someone's words and bend them into new, more pleasing shapes.
1: But all they have to do is say a positive adjective. Yeah. And that's it. You've got it. Great. That's all you need.
0: It It
1: might be, it's a great big pile of...
0: mm, Great and it'll just put great
1: yeah it's true,
0: great and big um, <laughs> no it very interesting, I mean you know those those words from Millen um remind me of the uh scene from the Godfather when Sonny has been killed, and um uh, Don Corleone goes to the undertaker and asks him, use all your skills. I can't let his mother see him like this. <laughs> Um, to put him him back together so that he could be presented with an open casket.
1: That's a good analogy there.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. And our final story is a little bit of flim flam after the darkness of that uh, opening story about Red Dog Press, which is that uh, you may have a knighthood. You may be the best-selling, one of the best-selling crime authors of all time. um, And you may have bought your airplane tickets back in February. But Sir Ian Rankin yes. um, was most miffed. He was taking a... Um, I can't
1: imagine him being miffed. No,
0: he was flying with his wife to Greece. Uh, flew down from Edinburgh to, to uh, London Heathrow and caught a BA flight from Heathrow to Greece. And he was going to, um, to Greece to see a... Uh, it was a dream of his to watch a production of oedipus Um, in one of the Greek theatres, you know, ancient Mm -hmm. Greek theatres. And he got bumped down from business class, which he'd paid for, to economy. Oh,
1: dear. Why did he get bumped down? Well,
0: when he went on the website to check in 48 hours ahead of the flight, it broke down and they couldn't help him. And so when he... Oh, they he said lost his seat. So he, when he went to the airport, they'd oversubscribed yeah. business class and he got bumped down. And um, anyway, oh, BA have no. said, well, we, you know, they haven't apologised. They've just said, can you take this offline and um, stop tweeting about it? <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I don't think he's one of these people to moan. But, you know, I can see his point. If you bought the tickets back in... I mean, who else bought tickets for that flight in February? Not many people, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, but... <laughs>
0: And, you, you, you know, would you not be tempted to say, do you not know who, who I am or something <laughs> sort of thing? I have done a bit of Scottish accent on my latest uh, production, I hope. Yeah, but um, the,
1: the systems that deal with these things won't know that, that Ian Rankin hasn't confirmed his flight. They will just know that there is a seat that hasn't been confirmed and they will give it to someone else. Yeah,
0: I know. Well, there you go. I'm sure he'll be looked after royally on the way back. Not the BA do that sort of thing anyway on those short-haul flights because you have to get M&S sandwiches you pay for, I think. No. Yeah. I thought oh, yeah. that was
1: just, like, uh, EasyJet.
0: No, no, no. They got rid of the in-flight meals on, <gasps> on short-haul flights.
1: I never knew that. Oh, yeah. Humph.
0: Yeah, it a big hump. <laughs> well, there we go. A uh, right, you know, regal hump. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, right, let's move on to our interview with Greg, which um, will fill you with positive energy and... Um, if you're like me, whenever I come away from a, a Greg Moss chat, I will feel like writing my next book.
1: Do you know one thing I notice about Greg? And both times when mm. we've interviewed him, he doesn't sit down.
0: No, he does it standing up.
1: He does it standing up I mean, and he walks. Co- talking side to side on Zoom, to side. I mean. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes, he's I mean it's all part of that sort of actorial yes, energy. Exactly. And it projection. gives him
1: it it makes his voice. Better and you know it gives him the energy and
0: while we're sort of curled up
1: that, on the sofa, so
0: gradually <laughs> melding with the sofa as we speak. But anyway, let's uh, speak to the wonderful Craig Moss. Well, Rebecca, this is a, not quite a first, but it's pretty close it's a to second.
1: it. Second,
0: <laughs> <laughs> having um, you know uh, a guest back again quite so often and and uh, so soon, I should say really, uh, and to face your random question at the end. A second time. I which know. Is I,
1: going to be... a, I can't remember what I asked last time. The no, time. I'm already what
2: feeling randomly challenged so don't <laughs> no, worry. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> well we're joined again by Greg Moss which is fantastic and, and thank you so much for joining us because I have to say that it was one of the highlights of our interview year last year when we spoke to you for the first time. What
2: lovely people you are for heaven's sake <laughs> come on.
0: <laughs> and I and I listened back to it was episode 94 for those who want to go back and, and listen to that and and uh, I listened to it again this morning just absolutely dripping with wisdom as we oh, expected and that's just us <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: yeah well done both
0: of you <laughs> so you're very welcome back and this time we're focusing not so much on the the coming darkness was your thriller that was out when we were talking last time
2: yeah that was last november november 22 right. that came out
0: yeah so that was just ahead of, of release
2: uh and now we're dipping into the world. So- of cozy
1: We've gone from dark to a little bit lighter.
2: It is lighter. And um, as I was saying to um, my friend Phil Hewitt, who's um, a, the arts journalist on the local newspapers, um, the Chichester Observer and others, he was asking yeah. me, how is it that it can, it's such a good question, Rebecca, how is it that it can be lighter when it's about murder? And of course, mm-hmm. the answer is that in a cosy crime novel, once the perpetrator of that terrible act is identified and taken away for off-stage punishment, you know, off the page, <laughs> everything is once more right with the world. It's the fact that it can be put right. Whereas in the climate fiction of The Coming Darkness, this or that might be terrible event, might be prevented but there is still that much, um, there's still loads that, that has to be confronted in drama and potential tragedy.
1: You think that is the appeal of cosy crime then, this need to write the world and it's to completely have a happy that. ending?
2: It's completely that. That there is a world which would be pleasant to live in were it not for the eruption, the interruption of this terrible thing. But once that, like I say, has been resolved and the perpetrator identified then everybody can go on with their lives.
0: You picked the Sussex Downs, which is pretty much, you you live in the shadow of them as your location for for these novels. Um, It's a beautiful setting for it. And it it, it just reeks of cosy, doesn't it? I mean, chocolate box villages after chocolate box villages, different buildings, and it is an astonishing area. I mean, how how much did you explore? Or was it just an amalgam from your from your experience of, of walking the Downs in that
2: area? Well, interestingly, the very first, the first time I ever spoke about it to a fellow um, author, I was not this year at Harrogate, but the year before. And I was talking to Vasim Khan, who is a wonderful writer of um, um, cozy crime set after Indian partition. Um, and um, the things that I focused on, because they were sort of up, uppermost in my mind, like um, the power cuts, the miners' strike the um social divisions the class divisions Um all of those things that i remember so clearly from when i was 11 years old living in um in poverty in a village in the sussex downs and he said that doesn't sound very cozy and i said no <laughs> no you're right those things aren't cozy but although that's the panoramic backdrop to it um the relationships between people who have grown up and lived together over 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that's what's cosy. Those long-lasting, established relationships of neighbourliness and friendship. Mm. Yeah, very true.
1: Yeah, because you don't get that in thrillers, do you? Not really. Not so Neighborly much. friendships.
0: <laughs>
2: no, not so much. <laughs>
0: well, they're more transactional relationships, aren't they? Uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've... We live in a tiny hamlet, but I have had the sort of the more cosy, wider village, slightly bigger village uh, experience uh, living in Cambridgeshire, and it really is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost claustrophobic. If you—if 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 if you, it—if you're having a bad time, it can be work one or two ways. It can work uh, where people support you, but equally, you become the gossip, and that's <laughs> that's one one of the challenges. Yeah, I totally exactly that... see that. Does that dynamic play into into the into the uh, work that you've been working on there?
2: actually I'm sure you'll remember that my hero Maisie Cooper because mm. this is the first of the Maisie Cooper mysteries um one of the reasons why she leaves is because she hates that claustrophobic element she's because um this is not a spoiler because it's not to do with the plot of murder at Church Lodge or the next novel murder at Bunting Manor um. One of the reasons that she leaves is because her parents die in a stupid road traffic accident in London. And she therefore becomes a figure of gossip. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Not necessarily malicious, but somebody that people talk about rather than to. Um, They they don't know what to say to her and so on. And therefore, at the beginning of Murder at Church Lodge, and again, it's the first thing that happens, so it's not a spoiler – And she has to return to this village of Framlington, as you beautifully put it, in the shadow of the Downs, for her brother's funeral. Well, that brings all of that, um, all of that reluctance to confront small uh, small village life and being a centre of attention brings it all back to the surface.
0: And clearly, I mean, she's reluctant sleuth as well. I mean, she's drawn into this. Reluctance is a very strong element here. Uh, How does she deal with that? Because, you know, if you are going to sleep, you have to start
2: probing and breaking through that reluctance to engage. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. Um, But tell me, I mean, if it was you, Mm. if you were in that position, Adrian, Mm. and you discovered that your brother who had died, your older brother, who you, not exactly hero-worship, because Maisie could see his faults as well as his virtues, but that it seems that people aren't quite telling you the truth about how it happened. And quite soon you discover that not just you, but also the police have their suspicions that the circumstances surrounding his death are not as simple as they at first appear where you would feel that willingness. You would you, you would want to know why, wouldn't you? You wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's more than willingness. You'd have the urge. You'd have to, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah,
2: you'd be driven Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's almost like a cosy version of Get Carter. You
0: know? <laughs> Very good. <laughs>
2: but Martin without Kane the fast up cars and the misogyny. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that, those elements, yeah. Um... And the
1: brutalist architecture. Yeah, <laughs> oh, brutalist I love that.
2: I love that. Speaking of localities, you're in Cambridgeshire, I'm in Sussex. So the nearest large town for me, and it figures in... um... The, the second novel in the series, Murder at Bunting Manor, because there's, uh, Maisie has to go to Portsmouth, which is our nearest large town, which is a fantastic old um, naval, Royal Naval port, mm-hmm. as well as a Merchant Naval port. And uh, I have this extraordinary memory of Pompey being the place where we would go from the, from the Downs, from Chichester, from this neck of the woods, for invigorating and exciting life, because it was a proper city. And of course, because it was, um, because it's a Royal Naval port, it was bombed in the Second World War by the and by the Luftwaffe, and so there were a number of places where there there were these monuments of brutalist architecture. Oh, absolutely, yeah, such as the concrete Tricorn Shopping. center. I was center. going to say the Tricorn Centre, yeah. There you go. And do you know what? If you go online and search, you can find people who make tiny concrete paperweights in the shape of the Tricorn because of course eventually it was deemed well too too ugly too brutalist to survive and was demolished mm. of course what's there in its place is a red brick shopping center so it's not better is it <laughs> uh, no um no but it was one of the
0: defining features i mean you know you've got hms victory warrior uh, you know the the carriers um the uh, uh the, the the fort at the entrance to the harbour all exactly. those sort of things and the spinnaker tower yes and you had the tricorn
2: centre and yes. um
1: what happened in the tricorn centre
2: well it was a it was a shopping centre
0: wasn't it oh, I don't yeah. know. a car park I mean, I uh, yeah, yeah city centre multi-story car
2: city centre car park and shopping centre but it um but um but i mean people people say the same thing about lasden's national theatre don't they oh, And yeah uh, but it's one, I mean, I've I've lived in a number of different countries. I've seen a lot of great architecture and and it's definitely one of my top three buildings I've ever seen. I would say same for me too. I mean, not great. least
0: because I was going as a, as a kid with my school. We used to go to various productions and mm. it felt like you're stepping into the set of Logan's Run. Oh, um, very good. Yes. Yeah. That sort of Californian Guggenheim style, yeah. uh, you know, multi-platforms. Uh, it was fabulous to explore, but I still love it as, as a as a building. Even though it is brutalist, I still feel the creativity pouring Absolutely. out of yeah. the concrete, which yeah, it, yeah is rare. And um, and there's that
2: lovely detail, Adrian, in the mm. uh, in the initial design that the uh, a lot of the concrete is not flat concrete; it's cast yes. with um, the grain of timber imprinted on its surface. Yes. So it has that um, more natural texture to it, but that's what the Nazis did uh, with their uh, building of submarine
0: pens and uh, the Atlantic fortifications. That's got timber impressions in that because uh, they use them as timber casts for to the framing. Even, yeah, framing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So we um, may have <laughs>
2: drifted off topic into brutalist well, architecture, no but, but it's all good. Well, the Tricon Centre, yeah. no, it's gone.
1: Oh, because I want to go. <laughs>
2: Now Go I mean, online, nearest... Rebecca, and look for the paperweight. That's all we've got left. I mean, <laughs> there's that
1: Christmas present idea. Preston,
2: I think
0: Preston Bus Station is still existing, and that's sort of the similar sort of
2: Barbican, of course,
0: and the Barbican. The
1: yeah. Hampton School of Art.
0: Yes, a good mm. example.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh, I love that building. I love being in there.
2: There so... you go. There you go. Well, well anyway, all of that. It's just to, just to say that um, you want contrast, don't you, in the cosy world. Um, there, uh, you want those contrasts as well, and um, although that doesn't happen so much in Murder at Church Lodge, it's very much in the village of Framlington, uh, clustered around the village shop and the church and the village pub. In Murder at Bunting Manor, that comes out in November, there mm. is this a slightly larger sense of a wider world, including the nearest large town.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and but it's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? That, as you say. You, you would be drawn to Portsmouth for the for the bright lights, such as they are. Yeah, we and 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 the the energy and and the facilities. Um, but many people living in those sort of villages, and I, as I say, I, we we've talked about this before. Right? I used to be the Chichester reporter, so places like Midhurst and all the places in between, Goodwood and all that sort of thing, um, were very much uh, places of refuge from that urban. Hmm. Um, Sort of, you know, it was a sort of necessary evil that they had to use Portsmouth as their big place to go yeah. to. But they, you know, there's a feeling, almost an, an insular feeling around those Sussex villages. I feel yeah. sometimes.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so, even though, so that there are people who see Maisie as a stranger who has returned from her apparently glamorous life in Paris, although she lives, you know, a regular workaday existence there. And there are people who are more generous and see her as a daughter of the village and welcome her back. Now, in particular, I was asked the other day about if anybody in the village was based specifically on a memory of somebody that I had from when I was 11 years old, 50 years ago. Oh, by the way, I did enjoy that. The idea that I was writing a novel Set exactly 50 years ago. I thought that was fun. Anyway, um, the, um, the only one who is close to people I knew back then is the blacksmith who, um, he's a sort of immemorial character, isn't he? Whatever <laughs> his name is, whatever he's like, the blacksmith is a blacksmith. Mm. And of course, outside, um, outside John Wilkes, the blacksmith's forge, which is right next to the pub. There's a pile of horseshoes, which is the product of 40 years of peeling them off the hooves of the horses and tossing them into a pile that little by little rust is, rusts together mm. into a mass, like, mm. a, like the history of his occupation with fire and iron. Mm. I, I love the fact that, that there are still
0: blacksmiths working in that neck of the woods. I also like the fact that there are charcoal smokers. Horses
1: will always need shoes.
0: Um, yes. Going on in, in, in the, uh, in the downs as well. Yes. Um, and indeed, I mean, you've worked with West Dean. So, yes. um, which is a former agricultural college. Uh, I think, um, but it also has the museum next to it, the downland and Wheel museum, which is full of buildings, which have been saved from being covered in bypasses and, Something yeah. Like. Very.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh,
0: and so there is, you know, you have a rich resource of all of that historic details to, 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 to
2: draw on. Yes, it is true. And if you grew up in that context, you know, if on a, a Saturday you were paid two shillings to go and be a beater tramping through the woods in order to drive the pheasant up into the air for the guns, because they were bred for the guns, right? They wouldn't be there living in those woods were it not for the fact that hunter i mean that that's imprinted upon you isn't it, it I, I had a very there was an orchard nearby um and i think I, I was probably about 14 years old when i had the worst job that i have ever done i don't know if you know this but in order to keep the apple trees small close to the ground for ease of picking the fruit you ring the apple tree but not completely that means you've got this um a thing, it looks a bit like a chisel, but with a round circle a blade on the end. And you tap it into the bark, and you go three quarters of the way round the tree, leaving only a little bit for the xylem and phloem to go up and down the trunk of the tree. And that keeps it sort of bonsai, not bonsai exactly, but you know what I mean, not mm. much taller than yeah. me. Dwarf, yeah. Anyway, mm. you can imagine the awful crouching and bending and sc- Guffling about in the underbrush beneath the apple trees, kneeling on flints from the downs, poking yeah. through into my tender knees. That was a terrible job. That said, it's because of people doing those jobs that can only re- only really be done by hand that those apple orchards are so productive, mm. and that's that's the texture of rural life, isn't it? Well, it is. I
0: mean, if anyone, I mean. I remember you've done this as well, oh, picking, picking, strawberry picking.
1: Yeah, I, I lasted a day exactly.
2: Rebecca, I mean, it's, I, a I gro- it's a it's a it's a it's a long grovel, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but not much money at the end of it.
2: <laughs> no, well, it sounds like writing. Um... <laughs> <I'll> stop it. <laughs> Excuse well, me, we,
0: but um, let's uh, when we when we spoke last, um, you have a, a rhythm to your day, which is you know you write really before the rest of the day gets going so yes six six ish in the morning finishing at nine and then ten life. probably P- ten ten right to, okay yeah
2: and but, and then of course because i'm um a sedentary writer not sedentary my whole life but you know that part of my day is sedentary and then in the afternoon i'll have you know business stuff to be done letters to write emails to send all of that I try and make sure that I can go in the gym as well because we're fortunate to have a rowing machine and a running machine, so in a room in our house. So do that straight from those three and a half, four hours of writing, and uh, it, it feels like I've—it's uh, like the antidote. It's like the the exit from the imaginary world. The otherwise, and you'll know this as well as all of the wonderful writers you publish. It can become all consuming, can't mm. it? That being lost in the imaginary world. It can, yeah. It
1: like time travel in the gym. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I do tend to carry on thinking about what I've been writing. But if I row for 20 minutes, by the end of that, it's sort of, I've drifted out of it.
1: But it's also a good a good way to sort of, churn isn't it and then maybe come up with an idea that you were stuck with or something because you're doing something quite mundane and
2: yeah so that's that's really well put and that the end of the process so um if i were if i were writing something new at the moment but i'm not i'm editing the third Maisie cooper mystery murder at the theater uh, which you 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 know already is in fact chichester festival theater because yes. it remains local in southwest sussex um but if I were writing something new, that that you've described, Rebecca, that would tend to happen towards the end of the process. Mm-hmm. And I would actually, because at that point, I mean, I sometimes describe it as the beginning of the novel sort of opens it out. Then it goes, it progresses in parallel, doesn't it? It doesn't carry on spreading, you know, wider and wider. It, go, it And then, of course, the the last third... It has to narrow down to the climax. Mm, mm. And it's when I'm writing that part that most often I'll have to break off from rowing and dictate a text message to myself <laughs> on my phone that I can pick up later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the analogy you used before was that you're starting with an estuary and actually it's a river flowing in reverse and getting narrower as you get towards the end of a novel
2: that's right you want the end to be a torrent don't you Mm. with with it all tumbling after itself and Mm. and hopefully that wonderful feeling you get from the the most satisfying endings which is it's all plausible and satisfying and it's all resolved in the same sequence of dramas it's not like, oh, and this story ends up over there and this other story ends up over there. You want them all to come together, to focus to a point. And I know that um, that's something that you talk about with your authors. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it's
0: it's a very current conversation we had with one of our authors not so long ago where I felt that the resolution, um, essentially you resolved the story 60% of the way through um, and the other 40% didn't sort of correlate. And so gone back to to rewrite it so that there is this you know it reaches an apex which we've been led to expect because yeah. otherwise it was just there was a sort of a, an epilogue scene that, that appeared out of nowhere yes. um and unrelated well
2: semi-unrelated to the rest of the book which which was unsatisfying But, so. but, Interesting but as, thing- uh, sorry rebecca but as experienced publishers and editors it doesn't yeah. it doesn't worry you does it because you know that that can be uh, reorganized into a more powerful narrative shape. The thing that worries is how an author is going to react. What? And how do you impart that
0: feedback in a way that empowers them rather than knocks them back, if you like. Because it but actually it went really well yeah, that conversation. In this
1: case he said I knew there was a niggle. He said he had a niggle and and, and he, he, his plan had originally been a little bit like we were describing that he should do. And he, Do you know what you're right? <laughs>
2: Well, I have a a really, I think, quite an interesting one there. In Murder at Church Lodge, uh, there is a a secondary character who is um, so not Jack Wingard, the sergeant of police at Chichester Police Station, but a second character who was an old friend of Maisie's uh, deceased brother, Muhammad Asaba, who is um, somebody that uh, uh, Stephen was in the army with. And... Um, in Murder at Church Lodge, I, I had the sense that there was a sort of nascent love triangle between Maisie and Jack on the one hand and Muhammad on the other. As it, as it turned out, there, there wasn't really room for that subplot to exist in Murder at Church Lodge, and so it doesn't actually come to fruition, and this is the fun part of it, until book three, Murder at the Theatre. And so it's completely skipped book two, Murder at Bunting Manor, in which Muhammad doesn't appear, but it is present in book three, Murder at the Theatre. And I, that, that's one of the greatest joys, I think, about writing a series, that the, um, the storylines that play out over separate volumes. Mm, absolutely. Mm. And the Festival Theatre, I mean, we'll go back
0: to architecture, but I mean, there are some who, who don't like it because it is semi-brutalist it's concrete and, and 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 whatever but it is a beautifully airy light space i have i've
2: always wonderful thought. yeah and it, it is no it bad is... seats 1200 of them no bad seats exactly it's, it's <laughs> magnificent
0: and um just remind me i mean it was laurence olivier uh commissioned it and so presumably had in fact in for the he
2: was he was in at the start but incredibly it was a local um I want to say dentist, but, you know, dental surgeon, and, 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 a sort of very senior in his career. But he yeah. was actually, you know, a dentist. who Leslie Evershed Martin, who came up with the idea and thought that, uh, and was inspired by a theatre in Canada that had a similar modernist form, a thrust stage and a fan auditorium. Mm. And then this extraordinary thing happened, um, which brought about a much closer family connection for us. Um, Leslie Evershed Martin came out of his office on West Street in Chichester and was confronted by Richard Moss, the father of my wife, Kate Moss, Mm. who said to him, they knew one another. Richard was a notary, you know, a solicitor. He said, I used to be an actor. I understand you want to try and build a theatre in Chichester. Is there anything I can do to help? And 40 years later, Richard was still the company secretary. Wow. But one of, the, one of the things that comes up in book three of the Maisie Cooper Mysteries Murder at the Theatre is the fact that, in part, that extraordinary building was built on public subscription, on jumble sales and cake sales, um, by the, the community of Chichester. And still today, with its more than 50 years of huge, 60 years now, of enormous successes, it's, it's still, like, crazily big. For a modest market town in southwest Sussex,
0: yeah, it is. Yeah, no, I, I was always fascinated by it. Um, in terms of uh, the inspiration of getting into cosy writing, I mean, who did you read? Who did you take uh, inspiration from?
2: Well, there's 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 two obviously icons of the genre. So there's the uh, the magnificent characterization on which almost all the Jane Marple stories are based mm. by Agatha Christie. The sense that it can be deduced who said or did what by what people are like. And that's really important to me. And then alongside that, and I think even more important, is the mistress of the classical puzzle whodunit, the Australian crime writer, Nio Marsh named after the the, the shrub n g a i o um and she has for me the the cleanest um sort of mechanisms in her plots in the same way that you know p g woodhouse will have a brilliant mechanism to his comedy novels she's got these brilliant mechanisms um and the, the there will the, the revelation of the key elements of the dramas are always done with such a light touch um as well anyway so that, those two i would say yeah uh, but it's it's such a hot
0: genre at the moment i mean Richard osman is the uh is the new king of the genre yeah. <laughs> uh, selling Casquillian books um oh, you've
1: got one over there <laughs> and I, I
0: i noticed that you know you in the in the blurbs it's
2: it's you're being compared to to him is that a compliment well there's no downside to that is there no <laughs> and then i was very fortunate also that the um peter james who alongside being a brilliant author um does so much for a number of different charities uh, was uh, agreed to put that uh, you can see it behind me can't you that mm. There it is. That fake sticker on the book. It's it's not actually a sticker, it's actually printed. And Peter very kindly combined these two things we're discussing and said fans of Osman are in for a treat. And I don't <laughs> think he meant the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire when he said Osman. No, either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, no indeed not. <laughs> no, that's I mean he is he's extremely generous um in that way and and, and in many ways. I guess he's the godfather of Sussex crime fiction at the moment, isn't
2: he? It is different, though, isn't it? I was talking mm. to Graham Bartlett the other day, who is yeah. a um, 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 your your listeners may not know he's a he's a wonderful advisor. He used to be very senior in the Brighton and Hove Police Force, and he's become an advisor to uh, people who write contemporary police procedural stuff. Yes, just in, just in passing, in cosy crime, that's another distinction, isn't it? The, there's very little that's procedural in a cosy mm. crime novel. It just doesn't seem to feel at home there. I don't think. Anyway, um, Graham worked on non-fiction uh, books with Peter James before yes, he the, became the babes in the Wood
0: murders and things like that. Yeah,
2: an author of fiction in his own right. Yeah, um, and um, but there's a there's a very different flavour, I think, to um, to to their work, which is. Uh, so, the Roy Grace novels by uh, peter james and graham 's work they're they 're based aren 't they in the the technicalities of forensics and um, and hierarchy and the force and 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 interviewing back to what you were saying earlier, Adrian interviewing people with the authority of your job as mm. opposed to Maisie engaging people in conversation and wondering how to get them to talk. When she has no way to insist that they talk,
0: yes, yes, that's very that's mm-hmm. a very good definition.
1: Yeah, uh, so uh, getting uh, information without seeming that you're interrogating. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, you know, there there is this thing, and we've talked to a number of um, Graham included, a number of former coppers who are now writers, and um, in terms of those interviews, uh, it, there is this element of they're sitting down. In this is in their career. And they're sitting there thinking, why is this person lying to me? And how do I prove that they are? Um, and that is also, I guess, what Maisie's doing, but in a completely different environment, you know, not in a stark interview it's room like with, when, with the tape running.
1: When you know one of your children has, has eaten the last Mars bar and you have to get the information out of them.
2: <laughs> do you mean your Mars bar is, is the Mars bar you're f- referring to there? <laughs> yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, so here's another aspect of it too. Um now, uh, th- and this is something I think that um, Naomi Marsh does uh, brilliantly in her Puzzle Whodunits. And she must have, what did she write? Something like 35 between 1934 and 1980-odd. Um, so in those books, she will often have a romantic subplot. Not always, but often. And there is, uh, between her, um, her hero, Roderick Allen, who is a a, a, a very brilliant detective. Um, partway through the series, he meets the person that he will eventually marry. And she writes, I think, really convincingly about the, um, a moment in uh, British society when the death penalty was still in place and if Roderick Allen was successful in finding the culprit then they would be hanged. And the woman who he is coming to understand that he loves finds that an intolerable responsibility Mm. to, to share her life with somebody whose goal in life is to achieve another human's death. And I think, now, although that's not the case in 1972 in southwest Sussex, there, is, there are still barriers in the way of Maisie and Jack's relationship, which began many years ago at school, uh, because Jack also is from this, this corner of the world. Um, there are barriers uh, or to prevent that relationship rekindling.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um, 1972...
1: Well, I was one.
0: Yeah, and I was two. But
2: <laughs> you are but children, my friends. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But you know, it's a time you know, it's just a cosy story, but we're talking about policing being um how do we put it? Very different, uh yes. from 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 what we now know. Um and indeed, are you thinking
2: lack of forensics? Is that that well, what you're thinking about?
0: I mean, lack of forensics is a key thing. You know, fingerprints is pretty much it, isn't it? In, fingerprints in are
2: there. Um, it, yes, yeah, so they, you, you wouldn't find, I don't know, some, some hair, for example. This mm-hmm. happens in Murder at Church Lodge. A few strands of hair caught in the clasp of a ring that holds the stone in place. Well, clearly that somebody has been grabbed by their hair, by that hand that wore that ring. But you can't do a DNA analysis of that hair and prove that it was person X. But you can recognise the colour and length of that hair. And it's a clue in, I don't know, it's a more homely sort of clue, isn't it?
1: Or a homesly sort of clue. Oh, very
2: good. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And in in terms of
0: um, historic detail, uh, I have written the occasional thing which is drawn on my memories but it it, you know for everything that you th- think you remember um there are a dozen things that that sometimes prove you don't i, I don't know if that's something
2: you hit i mean you, you well i had go to catch, through the... I, I had to check a couple of things there's yeah. a jukebox in the pub in the village <laughs> so i had to make sure that the songs that were playing quite were would deaf not just that they were out, but they would have made it to the jukebox. So it would be mm. no good if they came out three days before, would it? Because they wouldn't no. yet mm-hmm. be the forty-five vinyl disc in that machine with its you know complicated mechanism. So there was that. Um, I have very strong memories of my first ever cooking. Now let's see how quickly you can guess what it is that I was cooking. I would open the packet and I would remove a sachet of rice that I would fry in butter. Then I would open another packet of dehydrated, crummy stuff and pour it on top with half a pint of water and simmer it until it reconstituted.
1: Well, it sounds like a pot noodle, but it's not in a pot. No,
2: that's (laughs) um, going to be a Vesta.
1: Vesta. Vesta, yeah. yeah. It was
2: a Vesta dehydrated, ready meal. Beef curry was the flavour. It tasted Mm. most of sultanas and MSG. But I didn't know that then. My tastes have become more sophisticated as time has gone by. But, of course, that in 1972, that sort of dehydrated meal was, um, was, was a, a staple, certainly, among um, working class people such as we were. Um, however, at the copy edit stage, somebody with very close attention to detail said <laughs> to me, because um, I'm not sure that advert would have been on the television in the window of Radio Rentals on North Street, Chichester. And I, I thought to myself, oh, no, that's a shame. And, of course, the advert that I was thinking of was the robots who advertise Cadbury's instant mashed potato yeah. with the jingle for MASH get smashed. For
1: get MASH smashed.
2: That's the one. And it was true. Um, it were, I was uh, something ludicrous like six months too early for that uh, oh. advert to be on the telly in the window of radio rentals. Oh,
1: that is frustrating. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's an iconic one. Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask about you know the speed at which you're releasing the books because first one yeah. out already, next one in November, yeah, uh, then one in April, March, um, March, March I beg your pardon. <laughs> we'll call it spring, yes, uh-huh. good, yeah. and then one one further one in the autumn,
2: nope. um, in July. In July, Wait, okay. Adrian, it's going to be twelve right. months after the first one. The fourth one will be out. That was that yeah. I, I, we, I, I mentioned this this to you uh, before. It was that mm. was the um, that was the goal for me to have a publisher, and Hodron Stoughton is a wonderful publisher who could um work hard and fast and get the books out to that rhythm yeah because of course I've got other Maisie Cooper mysteries that I'm itching to write (laughs) just as soon as somebody pays me to do so but that's anathema
0: to a big publisher I mean to to have got that them to to recognize you know your your thinking on this is quite an achievement because one of the things that Mark's us apart as an independent publisher is the speed of of turnaround that we can achieve. But um, for many major publishers, they like, they like a long lead time.
1: They
0: like to to see whether it's worked before they commit to the next one, all that sort of thing. So that's quite, quite, I mean, that is actually a methodology that a lot of successful indie authors work on is getting four books out at the start of a series as quickly as possible and keep the momentum going. So, did that take much persuading?
2: Uh, well, of course, the the persuading was was done by my agent, who's actually yes. <laughs> Luigi Bonomi. Um, but whenever I was present in a meeting, I reiterated my point that this was my goal, <laughs> and um, and of course, partly that's because I started writing Book One of the Maisie Cooper Mysteries in um, February twenty twenty. Mm. So by the time, post-COVID and all the rest of that frantic period, by the time the deal was beginning to be done, there were three of them. Because, you know, I, I wasn't working uh, uh, full-time any longer in theatre because that wasn't possible. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I had the, the momentum of the editorial contribution of my agent. So it wasn't that I was writing in a void... Like uh, knitting an interminable scarf, I was writing. I hoped properly shaped eighty five thousand word classical mystery whodunits set in this small closed world of southwest Sussex, um, and the um, and that therefore there would be what's the word? There would be it would be foolish not to bring those out quickly, and of course. Hodder and Stoughton are uh, have an excellent digital presence in publishing, mm. and I think that is a different thing, isn't it? If they, if we were saying, "Oh, we're going to do a hardback, and maybe six months later we'll do a paperback," well, that's a whole different ballpark. Mm. Whereas, if it is a strong digital lead with an original paperback, well, that's different. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. I mean, that's what we do basically.
2: Yeah,
0: that's very true. Well Greg it's been an absolute pleasure. Um but now we have to, well
1: <laughs>
0: you know I I don't know anybody who would come back for a second time to get a Rebecca random question but <laughs> um, uh and and last time you gave it the build up I think. I think you or was it Greg who did that the uh, the other Greg. I Greg I can't remember. Anyway, well, look, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Drawing on your experiences as a, as a fine actor as well as a director and in theatre, why don't you introduce Rebecca's random question?
2: I am thrilled to be here at Hobeck, addressing one of the most pressing issues, troubling and inspiring authors that we can, any of us, think of in our modern age. The question is?
1: You've been invited to a dinner party. What would you really not want to see on the menu?
2: Okay. What this would is, make
1: you go, oh, I can't do yeah, this, this
2: is very, 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 very straightforward. I was once invited to a very posh dinner party, a very posh dinner party with some dear friends of ours who um, Amanda and Simon Ross are TV producers. And they invited us, and that was lovely. They invited a couple of other friends of ours that we know from the worlds of writing and television. There's terrible name dropping, but here we are. Victoria Hislop and her husband, Ian Hislop. Mm. There was also... Um, uh, there were some other, there were some other guests, guests as well. It was not ju- just this, this small group. And it was, it was a dinner party uh, that um, Amanda had bid for in a charity auction very generously that was being prepared in their kitchen by um, a very well-known chef. And the first course came to the table <laughs> and it was a deep fried crab with all of its limbs And it's apparently soft shell, all intact. And the person opposite me picked it up in their fingers and bit a chunk out of it as if it was a delicious jazz apple. (laughs) And I turned to my host and I said, there's no way I'm going to put that in my mouth. (laughs) brilliantly, of course, because it was this wonderful chef that Amanda had bid for at auction, that one of the waiters immediately swooped in, whisked it away, and gave me this delightful parcel of asparagus tips with a wonderful curry dressing on it. Delicious. There was no need that I should have been made to sweat and (laughs) hesitate over this deep fried crustacean.
1: I couldn't eat it either.
2: So that's the answer to Rebecca's random question.
1: That's a good answer answer, because I agree with you there. I I couldn't. I once once was invited to a pink party. So the theme was pink. You had to dress in pink and all the food was pink. And the starter was a cocktail glass full of prawns and then a big, what's it called? Lingerstein. (laughs) Longerstein.
0: Lingerstein.
2: So
1: I'm not very good with things with tentacles and eyes generally. So. I couldn't eat it.
2: Was well, there salata on the side, which is a terrifying concoction of fish eggs, isn't it? I love, oh, I, love I can't it. know.
1: Can't eat any of that.
2: I'm, I'm a big
0: fan of it. Um, <sighs> I went to a dinner party, uh, and I, it was when I was about eighteen. So I was I wasn't driving at this point. So I, I'd cycled across Cambridge in my trench coat, but I had to wear I don't know why it was such a fashion in in my age group to wear black tie to a dinner party when you're 18 just but to we show off. It the
1: same. We did us oh.
0: up
1: for a dinner party. It was
0: oh we black time. Up. So it was a, it was a howling gale and you know it was it just felt like it was one of those eternal cycle rides that you're never going to get there and I was soaked by the time I got there and then um And, and Cambridgeshire
2: is very flat and windy. Yeah, <laughs> very very exactly.
0: Um so driven rain into my face get there and she presents and I've got a problem with it conceptually but she said I've cooked pheasant I don't know whether I've done it right, <laughs> but I need you to carve it. And carving a f- I mean, the tiny birds. Really, when it boils down to it, I mean, in the end, we just got the cleaver and quartered them, and it was—it was, um, it was uh, yeah. Uh, was it, it was, tough? Yeah. Oh God, yeah. yeah. Imagine mean, I have eaten subsequently eaten in uh, Cairo. Um, I was training some some colleagues in the BBC Arabic service how to do sports coverage. And the boss of the BBC Arabic service insisted on taking me to their favourite local restaurant where they did stuffed pigeon. And again, th- a modest size of fowl. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And no next to no meat on it. I mean, you know, talk about flying rat. That's exactly how it tastes. <laughs> um, and but I he said, oh, I'm glad you liked it because we're going to go again tomorrow. And it was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs>
1: you see, that's, that's the problem. If you pretend to like something. Mm. That person thinks you like it and you'll get to eat that but for the by, rest of your life.
0: By by far the worst thing I've ever well, it's two things I would say, and I'm sorry to take over this this section, but that was in Nigeria and uh, something called goat knuckle soup was the hottest thing I've ever experienced. And as um, in spicy. It mm-hmm. was oh beyond beyond spice. I mean, it was just lava in, wow. in, in heat. Um and then the other thing was a cow pie that um I actually it was a mutton pie we we're in a, a lake district b&b when i was a kid it yes. was we starving hungry yes and this thing arrived in this watery gravy with the the bones sticking out of the pie crust
1: so you've got lots of memories a of stringy bad
2: stringy bad meat and it you notice it, it is mostly meat isn't it that disappoints yeah. meat when it's good happy days mm. but if anything's going to disappoint you it is it is flesh
1: yeah it is you're quite right realistic flesh for me
2: absolutely (laughs) yes tendrils and eyeballs and things oh dear oh dear we should leave this alone shouldn't we We maybe (laughs) we should pick it up in november when we come to speak of the murder at bunting manor who knows (laughs) or even next april when we come to speak of the follow-up to the coming darkness the coming storm all these options are open to us and you're always brilliant conversationalist well, oh well, that's very
1: particular feature isn't it? Think, uh, yeah. that's
0: very kind of you to say because <laughs> we were only reflecting last week's show how much Michael Parkinson had influenced our decision to go the conversational route rather than the set list of questions. We really
1: approach. thought about it, but we both used to watch Parkinson and then, then realize that, you know, actually there was an influence. What so. we don't
0: do tend to do which he always used to which was Tell me about your childhood. You, you grew up in
2: such and such, <laughs> but we've touched on it anyway because clearly it's been so. an inspiration. And yeah. now and then somebody would be invited to sing a song with the Harry Stoneham band, but yeah, that's right. let's not let's go down that road. got
1: guitars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Well, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and, you know, who knows, in a few months' time we may well be catching up again. Fantastic. The, the coming storm or, indeed, uh, the murder at the uh, Chichester Theatre.
2: We'll keep in touch. Thank you very much, both of
0: you. Thank, thank you so you. much. And good luck with, uh, with the release of this next one. And are you going on the
1: machine after this?
2: Uh, no, I've done that already. Oh. <laughs> I'm free to luncheon. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Jolly good. Greg Moss, thank you so much.
0: A joy. Well, I think he was inviting himself onto the show a third time. He was
1: indeed, yes, and ahead, we will have ahead of a third his spring time. releases. Yeah, I think of... he's going to be a regular. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like
0: it. Well, you know, maybe we'll see him at Fatal Shore. And we'll
1: get I need to in. think of more random questions for him.
0: Not so easy, but anyway, he, he 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 relishes the challenge, and I thought he did a lovely introduction to it. So, thank you, Greg, uh, as ever, a great pleasure to speak to you. Now, next week's guests. You are going. You said you would struggle with the names, so. um
1: Okay, I, I, so... I, my,
0: the mind boggles.
1: Well, next week we're we're talking to um, Antonia Lassa at the same time as Jackie Collins. Dr Noir? Is that what uh,
0: she's called? Yes. <laughs> Dr Jackie Collins, regular of the festival circuit, see her everywhere, uh, one of the UK's leading experts on the genre, and Antonia Lassa, you say?
1: Yes. So, in Spanish... She's, She's Spanish, I know. <laughs> right?
0: Okay, well, we've got some work to do to to figure out <laughs> the direction of that interview, but anyway, look, a doubleheader. It's a rare thing, but we love them. Can we do a, a lot of fun to do.
1: Yes, and and Jackie's one of those people we've wanted to talk to for ages. Anyway, yeah, so. who she was in Sweden this week when mm. I um, emailed her to uh, book in a slot for the podcast. She said, "Well, I am in Sweden, so can we do it when I get back?" and and I thought, "Oh, I want to go to Sweden."
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But not with BA if they don't give me sandwiches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. No, they don't. Well, anyway, let's uh, think about the week to come. Apart from the interview, we're talking to a number of our authors about their autumn releases.
1: Yes, we do have a couple of um, uh, Zooms with a couple of our authors. So we're getting geared up to the release of Chasing the Dragon, um, the follow-up to Waking the Tiger, which is a very exciting book.
0: By Mark Whiteman. By Mark
1: Whiteman. You've been recording the audio, Chase yeah, Dragon. And I so sent you've been it, living it for
0: Well, I really have, and it's it's been um it's been a labour of love. I've really enjoyed doing it. Mark is an exceptional author and it's a joy to do because in terms of the freedom to create I mean I, I love doing a received pronunciation characters from the nineteen forties. Um anyway, because, you know, as you keep saying, I'm posh. (laughs) But it's fun to play those sort of uh, character types. But within that, there are um, are some other challenges. I mean, I had to do quite a number of people who were Malay or Chinese and try not to make it sound like the sort of sing-song nonsense that we used to get in drama in the 70s. So to get the spirit of those people and give them, you know, all due respect. Yeah,
1: no, that's quite a skill, isn't it? So I hope
0: I've I've managed it because there there will be plenty of people out there, I'm sure, saying you know it's cultural misappropriation, you know you shouldn't be doing it, and you know you're not from that background. But um, you know we're talking about a story set in colonial Singapore in 1940, and um, I think it's really cleverly dishes up some of the attitudes that the different races had towards each other. Mm. Without ever really crossing into um, any sort of element of parody, mm.
1: um,
0: but it's a terrific tale. Oh, um, it is! It's uh, just
1: a really good story. It is.
0: It's really well plotted and written, and you know, it's classical. I mean, it's a it's a classic whodunit, and mm. um, with the the colour of that wonderful um, city state now. Mm. But, it's uh,
1: changed quite a lot, hasn't oh it?
0: massively, but I think Mark does a brilliant job of of taking us back there, so I've really enjoyed doing it and I, but i have it's taken me longer than I expected, and I just don't know why because I've spent as you know long days in the in the studio um and it and I was flowing as well it wasn't that it was difficult, so I don't understand why it has taken me um best part of, I suppose, solidly working on it for about three weeks, I think.
1: Yeah, but I think we had a few breaks for various things, didn't mm, we, as well? Okay.
0: And... Yeah, I, it's been an interesting thing. I, I, it Probably of all the audiobooks I've ever done, I think this is the one I'm, I, I feel has reached a, a new level. Mm. Of, and that's probably because I went through the slog of Greek philosophy. <laughs> yes. Um, it was a joy to get back to fiction.
1: Well, I would like you to play me a sample.
0: Well, I tell you what, have we got time in this week's programme? Maybe next week. Maybe next week I'll play you everybody a sample.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that would be good.
0: Okay, well, I shall find something appropriate. But um, the dialogue scenes are just a joy to do um, because you can just, you know, the dialogue carries all the emotion and it's very obvious how everyone is addressing the situation to play the different characters. So I shall put a dialogue scene in next week's show so you can get a feel for it. Excellent. So um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a busy week. Uh, I'm off to London tomorrow.
1: You are so yeah. I'm so going to th- I'm in charge
0: Europe's them. biggest ever wrestling show at Wembley Stadium.
1: We should talk about what you did today.
0: Uh, yeah okay. Well, I went over to um, uh, I went across the border to Shropshire, <laughs> and I visited truly inspirational um, business Booker Bookshop in uh, Oswestry and they are um some of the most i think probably they have been uh bookshop of the year uh at the nibbies and things like that
1: have they really mm-hmm. i didn't know that yeah. that is actually quite an achievement yeah
0: but it was a few years ago but they are a brilliant community bookshop with um they do everything right and then they do other things on top of that so mm. they they run a wonderful series of of author events so um, they have some really huge names actually turning up in Oswestry and, indeed, they are partnering up with a big... Bigger... Phil
1: from EastEnders next month. Uh,
0: no, Grant.
1: Oh, I might get them mixed up. Grant from EastEnders.
0: Yes, Ross Kemp um, <laughs> is coming next month. But, no, I mean, some really big authors. And um, so they either hold it in Oswestry for 300 people or they'll hold it in Chester with another bookshop for 800. Um, so that's one thing. But, you know, the book... Books are brilliantly displayed. There's a little cafe inside. It's a small shop. It really is. But everything that they've got is brilliantly chosen. But they've got a great online presence. They do loads and loads of outreach stuff. And during the pandemic, they set up a basically uh, hatch in the shop mm-hmm. to allow people to buy books. No, I haven't
1: heard of that anywhere else. So no. That's quite And they have a
0: subscription model as well. But they're opening a new branch in Bridge North, which is a little market town. Very ancient, um, very characterful, full of wonderful old buildings. Uh, right in the heart of the town, they're opening up a new one. Um, and they have some opportunities going there. So I, I'm interested. I'm in putting my my name forward because, as I say, I mean, you know, Hobeck doesn't make, you know, we, we don't make a salary from it uh, at present. And the prospect of that is not forthcoming at this present time. Freelance work for me is narration, but I'm not getting enough of it. So I have to think about doing something more traditional uh, <laughs> in terms of job as well as doing these other things. So that's what I'm looking to do, and mm. uh, I shall make it my approach this week, but um,
1: did you buy a book today? I did. yes. What did you buy? Um,
0: <laughs> death of a bookseller <laughs> uh, a thriller.
1: Death of a bookseller? Who's written that?
0: I don't know. I, oh. I couldn't tell you offhand. Okay, let me, no worries. Let me, no. I'll look it up in a moment, but um, it, 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 the the, cov- the cover spoke to me.
1: Ah, my, that's interesting.
0: Um,
1: Yeah. You were swayed by a cover.
0: Uh, yes. Alice <laughs> Slater.
1: Okay. Yes, I've heard of her. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you bought a book.
0: <laughs> in hardback, signed by the author.
1: Sup- support them.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, obviously, I wanted to have a conversation started, so I spoke to one of the owners of the shop.
1: Yeah,
0: and we had a good conversation, and hopefully, they will be future guests here on the Hot yeah, podcast.
1: Yeah, we haven't had a bookseller for a while. No, so.
0: but they are, you know, they really are innovators, and they're incredibly well networked with the publishers. In terms of, they are a small place, but they, but they have great influence, and mm. they, they are a way forward. And the fact they're opening a second branch, I think, is really encouraging.
1: Well, I don't think there are that many bookshops um, in this area anyway. And no, there aren't. A lot of people travel in from mid-Wales to that part of Shropshire to yeah. do their shopping. So they're very well placed for that in Oswestry.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the, you're true. It's true. They, they really... But the, I'm just absolutely blown away the, the comprehensive um, nature of the bookshop, even though it's really quite small just how well-stocked it was, mm. but how expert they all are. So
1: the curation is really good, yeah. is what you're saying. really
0: right? good, really good. Mm. Anyway, uh, I, I, so a bit of a digression there. That's what I did today.
1: Yeah, but it was But I think they're an
0: exciting outfit, and, um, and I, you know, if nothing else, I'd love Hobek to have a stronger relationship, because we're only across the border, we're only uh 40 miles away
1: yes there's yeah so I'd, I'd be nice if we had a relationship with the local bookshops it would better than we do but
0: yeah if indeed there were more of them <laughs> that would be nice too okay right well we'll wrap up there thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast bookshop i'm you know we are thinking of you sean and uh red dog and everybody connected to it um and uh I go back to the comments I made a few weeks ago when I got quite angry about the Independent Publishers Guild. Um, you know, the sec- that sector of the business is in trouble. There's no question about it. Yeah. So needs stop help. trying to deny. It just needs help. It, it needs help, and uh, you know, I looked at the autumn conference ticket prices, which is coming up in September in London. Oh yeah, another venue in you know have to drag. I was asked
1: London. if we were attending, and I just thought. I just almost just, wanted to laugh because it's several
0: it. hundred pounds per person.
1: We just can't afford it.
0: No, it. You know, again,
1: I'd I spend money on paying um, editors and yeah, uh, printers and you, well, know. you know
0: making books mm. um, rather than you know chin wagging about it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and that's for another day. Okay, thanks for joining us. And uh, don't forget to, to take a look at our website, net and our publishing services arm, archpub.net, uh, for details there. And indeed, my narration website, if you want, adrianhobartnarration.com. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I only say that because the Wix bill went out this week. But um,
1: Oh, was that you? Yeah, it was me, yeah.
0: <laughs> I did see that, yeah. But anyway, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. And again, um, we we love doing this show and we're very grateful for your support. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart.
1: And myself, Rebecca Collins.
0: Thank you so much. And have a wonderful and...
1: Creative.
0: ...week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobec.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.